you go down this cliff, go left out down the cliff, yeah. left, and then just tumble for a while, and then you should be there. It's society. They work for each other. They pay each other. They buy houses. They get married and make children. That just sounds like slavery with extra steps. I don't know if you've noticed, but our two-party system is a bowl of shit looking in the mirror at itself. I can't wait for the episode of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire where all the contestants team up and they overpower the host and they share the money. The message of Occupy Wall Street is I would prefer not to play the existing game. We are a socialist party and there are social solutions to the problems. Communal lifestyles, I don't know about that. No one can tell me what to do. Wow, you're a real anarchist. And now we had a king. I thought we were an autonomous collective. No words for you puppets of the West. Communism forever. God, God, those communists are amazing. Welcome to the Three Left Show. I'm, as usual, having technical difficulties. Um, my co-host, Michael Walsh, is coming in via Discord. Oh, yes, and he's also streaming on Twitch. Go to Homegrown Hangout to actually watch the video stream of his. This program covers news, issues, and anything of interest from a radical and revolutionary left perspective for the curious or the committed, promoting a post-capitalist present and future via direct democracy and a commons economy, discussing the means and ends of a multi-tendency left that is of itself and, importantly, for itself. The meaning point of socialism, anarchism, and ecology. These are the three flags of the three lefts. Michael Walsh is fixing his stream as he's blocking some sunlight coming in from his window. Hey, daylighting is nothing to fear, Mike. Daylighting yeah, can actually sorry, help. Yeah, it's just I'm not usually streaming at this hour, so there's light that I'm not used to having to take into account. Uh, so, great. And now I've started streaming, too, on 3 Left Show on Twitch. Uh, I actually had a few people watch that when I did that last night. Um, I basically talked about movement for people's party. Somebody was, I guess, lurking in their Slack channels and noticing just how much of a dumpster fire it is. Um, how there's basically there, it's, it's a party without any bylaws, no particular plan. It kind of has the air of a multi-level marketing scheme. Hey, you start the, 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 the local groups and then you, you know, collect 10 more people to start local groups and then, you know, it just keeps rolling that way. Um, because the, or the people at the top, you know, these activists that are like, so believe in this big 10 party idea, uh, that isn't left wing or any, or anything. They're not left or right. They're forward. Um, they oh, no. aren't, they aren't actually doing the organizing. Well, they're, yeah. they're moderating a Slack channel very badly. They're just, um, cutting down people as they complain. If they complain about things, they censor them. They delete their posts. Uh, others suggest, like, let's just have a separate channel just for complaints so I don't have to be infected by negativity. You have, you have a lot of that um, that noise. Uh, so this episode, uh, we're going to cover um, a little bit. So we're going to title it uh, Islands of Anti-Capitalism. Uh, so we're, we're following still on the anarchy track here, particularly direct democracy, and anti-capitalist activism slash organizing. And we'll go deep in the weeds on policy, um, because policy matters, having a vision for what you're working for. But we're going to start the show with the what's really happening on the ground right now. So we always start grounded before we go into what could be, as well as what exists, but not in America, not in any mass scale, or what did exist at one time 
in the case of in Portland. That's a KQED article, Mike. Yeah, the headline, Tired of Big Tech, Co-ops Appeal to Delivery Workers Burned by Gigs. If you order food from DoorDash, Uber Eats, or Postmates, there's a pretty good chance the person who delivers your meal has far fewer labor protections and benefits than you do. Gig workers lack basic employee benefits, such as guaranteed minimum wage, overtime pay, workers' compensation, and unemployment insurance. And Proposition 22, which California voters recently passed after a historic spending campaign by gig companies, creates a new sub-employee category for these workers, codifying the lack of protections. In the Bay Area, most restaurants are now using one of these three platforms to deliver their food to customers. But there are a small number of venues that have chosen to go with a local delivery option, one with a completely different ownership structure. Here's a mention of um, the uh, petitioning process in California that they have, you know, this resolution process. Citizens can pass laws, um, but in a capitalist system... They capitalists can just advertise more and win the campaign, and then they're still in control of the lawmaking Uh, process. That service is called the Candlestick Courier Collective, CCC. It was started not by eager web entrepreneurs with infusions of venture funding, but by people from the Bay Area's punk and fixed gear bike scene who aspire to create a full-fledged co-op in which every rider has a share of ownership. The effort is the latest iteration of bike courier service that has been in the Bay Area since the early 2000s, mainly operating as an anarchist collective with four owner workers and a network of some 60 independent bike messengers. The collective is in the process of transitioning into a co-op in which independent messengers will have a share in the ownership of the business. Headquartered just a few blocks from Uber headquarters in San Francisco's Tenderloin neighborhood, the cavernous warehouse-like space is empty, except a few offices made of plywood, racks of bikes, and a backroom outfitted with a drum set. Throughout the day, tattooed and pierced bike messengers pop in and out, grabbing radios and bikes, which are all communal. The collective's clients are all local small businesses, Primarily restaurants, including longtime regulars, Udi Papai Palace, Jay's Cheese Stick, and Miss Saigon. Food ordered from them is delivered by a candlestick courier, not a gig worker from one of the big app services. We are working with local businesses and only local businesses because the whole goal is to put the money back into our pockets, back into restaurant pockets, back into the community, said Tasha Rose, one of the four worker owners. At one point during college, while studying at UC Berkeley, Rose said she was so desperate for money, she drove for Lyft, something she vows to never do again. I would so much rather put that work and that time and that blood and sweat and tears into this, she said. Apps are constantly approaching the collective to, quote-unquote, collaborate, said Harris McClary, another worker-owner at CCC. We're really, really weary of new partners that seek our bis- our services because they're really just trying to exploit our labor. The collective has been burned before, twice, and badly. First, it was with Grubhub, which had been partnering with couriers across the country. 
McClary said the food app company in 2017 canceled all its courier contracts overnight and took over those services. Postmates, another food ordering app, similarly made off with local bike courier clients, McClary said. The second they got successful enough to vertically integrate into all of our own. That's Cookie, a toy dog. Yes, Cookie heard someone making any sound anywhere and decided I need to respond to that. Mm -hmm. He's a good boy. Is he a good boy? Uh, she's a good girl. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Sorry. Well, boy, boy of an eye can oh, be right. unisex. I don't care if you misgender my dog by accident. Yes. It's not a person. No, that was boy with an eye. That makes it unisex. It doesn't, she doesn't know that she's a girl. I don't know. Yes. Maybe. Mm. Maybe she identifies as a boy dog, and I have no idea. Who mm. knows? Let's All leave that aside. That Let's leave that aside. The goodest girl ever. Mm-hmm. Okay, McCleary said he's disappointed California voted for Proposition 22, allowing these companies to keep denying their workers benefits, he said. Gives the big app services an unfair advantage against businesses like his that are trying to offer employee status to workers, let alone a shared ownership co-op model. You got Although it. still small, the collective has grown markedly during the pandemic as more people rely on delivery service for many of their needs. You know, in addition to food delivery, customers can also hire the service for general courier tasks. The collective also recently state, or started working with the New Harmony Cafe in San Francisco's Mission District, which is participating in the SF New Deal program to provide food to quarantining seniors. Ben Angel, the cafe's owner, said it felt right to work with a collective rather than a delivery app that uses gig workers. It's a groundswell from the community instead, as opposed to, you know, a venture-funded hypergrowth. Let's extract as much from the people and the companies that are our clients and customers, Angel said. I used to work in tech, and there are some great tech companies out there, but there are a lot of places that put profit over everything else. Gary Valencia, one of CCC's couriers, started working for the collective right at the beginning of the pandemic. And he said he likes that he is delivering exclusively for local businesses. I'd rather know who I'm working for and who I'm delivering for rather than today. I'm going to this random fast food spot that I'm never going to see again and deliver to these people for a faceless app, he said. Valencia's parents are both immigrants. His father works as a gardener, his mom as a maid. My mom doesn't understand how I am a worker and an owner, he said. If something happens, she's like, how do your bosses feel about that? And I'm like, mom, I am the boss. I just talked to the other ones and explained this thing happened, and they all understand. Boom. Another thing that uh, this kind of represents is also a shift towards more of a localism because, see, as we face down ecologicalism, as we're facing down ecological crises and regular pandemics this i mean we're not even done with this one and when are we going to be done maybe it'll just keep going on forever it'll just keep morphing and changing because we can never actually nip it in the bud we'll basically need a vaccine every year half of the population will actually take it it'll it'll just i mean when when people are resigned that this is just going to be like the flu or they were already assuming it's like the flu except it's much much worse that is a bit horrifying to me, but it also is a call to actually bunker down and cloister yourself off from all of these other 
well, non-collaborative communities to denture, yeah, indenture a localism where it not only is safer that way, you're not participating in the global economy as much, or at least limiting your interaction with all of these other states and stuff and keeps it to just to, to lessen interstate travel and stuff like that. So it is just vacations or whatever, um, and which is more trackable. But just that it will probably make people a little closer and actually care. Like as he, as, as this one owner says, it just feels better. And when it feels better, maybe you're less of a butthole when it comes to other people's safety and stopping the spread, as it were, actually caring about that. Returning your um, grocery carts to the corrals. Uh, moving forward, the next story is a bit bigger, of course. So we, you know, we kind of scale up from a single co-op, an island of anti-capitalism or post-capitalism. Uh, but how does this grow? How does this, you know, well, the fact is it kind of doesn't scale up. It's not really meant to. It's meant to, uh, anarchist strategies, dual power building. It really is meant to be one neighborhood at a time and stay in the neighborhood and then other people just copy it. Well, maybe like franchises, maybe a franchise system. Say this is from Truthout. It's called Cancel the Rent, a rising national rent strike movement gains momentum. Unfortunately, I did not actually read this, um, which it's not something to read. It's a photo essay. So actually, but uh, no, 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 there is some text. Good. So the first picture is the newly elected Oakland City Council member, Carol Fife, speaks to a rally in Oakland, California, calling for canceling rents. Anja, the daughter of Dominique Walker, stands beside her. This is by David Bacon. The last story by about the uh, co-op was by a... Sam Harnett. Rent strikes have spread across the country with the spread of the coronavirus. In the pandemic's first months, 400 New York City families stopped paying rent in buildings with over 1,500 rental units. In May, rent strikes involving 200,000 tenants spread to Philadelphia and elsewhere. Washington, D.C., so this is particularly the, um, the big uh, the, uh, capital belt, the Northeast belt. In September, saw tenant unions spring up in strikes at the Tivoli Gardens apartments in the Wood, in the Woodner, as well as Southern Towers in nearby Alexandria. That's in Washington, D.C. Rent strikes had a history as a resistance tactic before the pandemic hit, of course. Cleveland tenants settled a rent strike in February after 38 families forced concessions on the landlord of the 348 unit view apartments in Beechwood, San Fran. Oh no, in Beechwood. San Fran had a famous rent strike that went on for three years at the Midtown Park Apartments, ending recently in 2017. I covered another rent strike in a story, I think, a year or so ago in Connecticut, I think. And it was basically a tactic against slumlord behavior, like how can tenants, poor tenants, but working tenants especially, fight back against the a large property owner that, hell, buys council members? They own government, you know, because they they make they pay all the property taxes. But with the pandemic, rent strikes have become a widespread response to brutal economic pressure. According to the Turner Center for Housing Innovation at the University of California, Berkeley, 16.5 million families who rent housing lost income when the crisis began. Its October report states nearly half of households in California have lost employment income since March of 2020. And one in five households indicated that they have no or only slight confidence that they have the ability to pay their mortgage or rent next month. Less, a little less than a quarter. 
According to the National Multifamily Housing Council, about a quarter of apartment households were not paying rent as of December 6th. But even before the pandemic, 16% had not paid their rent in a survey made a year earlier because times have been tough for the last decade even. A website set up by Bay Area tenant activists, Bay Area Rent Strike, notes that 78% of the people in the U.S. live paycheck to paycheck. 80%. You know, they have a job, they have income, they have cash flow, but they cannot, they're not saving. They cannot save up. There's no surplus. So no surplus, no reinvestment, no improvement, no actual growth. And that would be Mike calling back. Uh, I'm going to keep you reading, you know. and, uh, and you'll do the next one. Right. I was leaving sure. off. So we were just Sorry, going. Don't worry. I was just going through basically the stats on the economic pressures on tenants and people with mortgages as well. Uh, mortgages are simply rent to banks. That's something to keep in mind. So that's why, you know, rent and mortgages go hand in hand. It's really banks that have to quote unquote lose income okay. uh, at the end of the day because okay. they shouldn't be owning it in the first place. Collective ownership, community ownership would be, you know, better if it's a community bank, let's say, but otherwise it's, it's all really going up to like five big banks. And, that, and that's the true power brokers of our society. Yeah. So the last stat, Mike, was that about 80% of people in the U.S., this is noted by the Bay Area rent strike, 80% are living paycheck to paycheck. We must demand an immediate suspension of rent and mortgage payments for everyone. And if this demand is not met, we must refuse to pay this together, rents and mortgages. Canceling rents was the demand that spread across the country with the strikes. In April, Sia Weaver, organizer of New York's Housing Justice for All, though I'm aware of them, said canceling rent is the demand of the rent strike. Pretty simple, right? It's kind of like the Leninist language there. You know, the justice of the revolution is the people's revolution. In New in, La, in L.A., uh, Larry Gross, director of the Coalition for Economic Survival, so it's a little more dire in its title, but also more honest, says the city is full of rent strikes pushing for rent and mortgage forgiveness. Voicing that demand, the L.A. Tenants Union grew from 400 to 2,000 members in 2020. So it wasn't even that big. Like all of L.A., just 400 people in this tenants union. Well, it's uh, quadrupled in size. And it's only going to get bigger, I'm sure. Yeah, despite L.A.'s strong tenant protections against eviction enacted at the beginning of the crisis with no end date, the housing battle continues. People occupying the Caltrans housing were forcefully removed, Rose charged in an email interview. That was fashioned after the Oakland mother's efforts in March. Housing activists occupied homes purchased by Caltrans, which the agency intended to demolish for a freeway. How is this still happening in 2020? But then kept vacant for years. So maybe this was done a decade or so ago. But again, why were new freeways being built this century? Uh, on November 26, Highway Patrol and Riot Gear took them out and arrested many. Long L.A. activists were inspired by Moms for Housing, a collective of homeless and marginalized housed mothers who occupied a vacant Oakland home in 2019, you know, just single vacant home uh, squatting, and forced the city to find financing for its purchase, igniting a wave of housing activism. Small successes matter. 
Carol Fife, a Moms for Housing member, was elected to the Oakland City Council in large part as a consequence. On December 5th, she spoke to a rally organized by several tenants' unions just prior to a caravan to the buildings where rent strikes are taking place. People said canceling rents was ridiculously radical and not popular, Fife declared, as the daughter of another activist squirmed and danced beside her. That would be the little girl. But District 3 is ground zero for displacement, and people here think otherwise. We think a different reality is possible. The current paradigm in this country is not only not working, it is killing us. The caravan then set out, first a bicycle hauling a huge speaker, emblazoning with the slogan, Cancel Rent Debt, left at Lake Merritt parking lot, heading into a densely populated downtown apartment district. Following it came other bicycles with slogans taped to their frames. Skateboarders and roller skaters snaked along them, and finally came the cars with placards fixed to windows and doors. There's pictures of that. It's always great to have a PA system of your own, because just voice chants, you know, they're really fun when you have a lot of people, but if you, yeah, it's especially with a caravan like this, uh, you really need, like, a big speaker system to, like, carry, and you really are then, like, heard a block away and stuff. The caravan organized by the GDW Tenants Union, Alice Tenant Union, People's Tenant Union, so this is like a coalition of them, uh, Lene Tenant Union, Veritas Tenants Association, held impromptu rallies in front of several buildings where organized tenants have stopped paying rent. A statement was read from one group, the SMC Tenants Council, at a building owned by the Sullivan Management Company, quoting, we have been forced to advocate for our rights and our housing against a corporate landlord that is backed by hedge funds and billionaires, they charged. Our corporate landlord has ample resources to forgive rent to its tenants for the duration of the COVID crisis, but chooses instead to squeeze its tenants who have lost jobs and federal assistance. No, even welfare anymore. Councilwoman Fife is, direct, is the director of the Alliance for Californians for Community Empowerment which helps organize and support rent strikes throughout the state. The shelter-in-place orders will end, ACCE warns. The crisis for low-income and working families will not. Even before the crisis, most of us were living paycheck to paycheck. With the loss of income, there is no way for most Californians to pay back rent or more back mortgage payments that went unpaid during crises. Basic common sense dictates that because we won't be getting back pay, we have no way to pay back housing payments. Canceling the rent... ACCE says is the only solution. This is something small cities like Ithaca have done that we cover. More pictures, very nice pictures. I, I keep thinking about like joining a, a local tenants union here. They mostly do like the kind of crisis work of like, um, I'm on the fence of whether they actually organize tenants or they're really just kind of like a nonprofit that supports tenants when they're about to be evicted. Cause really they kind of play whack-a-mole slash crisis support. So when like the kind of daily grind of people just, just supporting people in their housing rights, showing up to housing court, um, giving people assistance, like I'm about to be evicted. Uh, you know, they you have, you know, a crisis line number. Um, uh, but then a, um, Fellow activist, I think, called them and they didn't get back. So they're, they're overloaded or they're not as a quick, it's not a quite a real crisis line. Cause they've never been quite a radical group of uh, the tenants union. Cause, uh, you know, they're ensconced in the right. democratic, you know, patronage system, so to speak. You know, they give, uh, awards to 
but just just because like there, there's a bit of a revolving door of uh, nonprofit leaders who then they're in the same strata. Let's see. Okay, we're making great time here, as I expected. Those are just activist activism stories. They don't take a lot of time. Uh, do you have the um, new Compass article up? So let me just introduce this. I think there was another. I had another few thoughts um, on the rent cancellation. Let's see. Another is like the kind of thought that I have. Like, why haven't I joined this tenant union? Right? I'm a tenant. I pay rent in a, in a way. But see, I'm also a prospective building owner in the future. I know my goal, like many others, is to own their own property. Of course, but my goal is augmented by that. I want it to be a collective. I want it to be a co-op of some kind. Upstate here in New York, upstate, upstate New York, we don't really have uh, building or housing co-ops at all. New York City has a lot of them. Um, but up here, it's a legal wild west as far as like there is no legal precedent. So banks wouldn't give a mortgage for a co-op. So we just kind of either have to collect all the money in one lump payment or something like that. There's no cloud. You know, there's a, there's a lot of things involved in actually buying property. Uh, it's not just the, you know, sticker price. There's the taxes involved. There's the actual like repair jobs you may need to do. Um, definitely have to do, especially in the inner city. And that's why it's a lot cheaper to just demolish most of it, which is the saddest possible outcome. We have to destroy the city to save it. And, uh, and there's, um, yeah, study. That makes sense. Yeah. And there's, see, the, that's the thing. Like right now we have grants to demolish housing. Um, there is also grants to rehab housing, but it's not enough to save, you know, as much as possible. And it's interesting about like with the bike co-op that they seem to, I don't, assuming they are renting it, maybe they own it. Um, a few blocks away from Uber headquarters. I can't imagine the real estate there is affordable, but they seem to, it must have been cheaper to just get this warehouse and use a corner of it rather than use like the rent a commercial space and elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was thinking when I, which is an odd thing because see my, um, my book business owner, book selling business owner friend and school board member. He's having trouble finding a new warehouse because he's in a kind of warehouse complex by the river and the river center and the land and the owners of that are scumbags um, that are real exploitative and they've been jacking him and he's trying to find a new place, but nothing is, he just needs something that's like, he has like 50 grand. That's his budget, 50 grand. And he just, there's just nothing like that. Uh, even run down half warehouse garages you have people who are trying to sell it for more than it's worth um, or more than what. Just sell it to me. I'm a community person. You know, it's like, but there's still this market mentality even with, well, with the older property owners that may be activists too, but they're like, oh, I need retirement or something like that. It's, 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 a, sad, it's a sad state of affairs to speak in a general way. Yeah. So do you have a new compass thing up? Yeah. Good. Um, so what would real democracy look like? Yeah, so now we're kind of moving. Can I just give an intro? So we're going to move into the – These are, this is a set of policies which have been tested in other places in the world and kind of make up the battery of reforms that would make even our current system, right, without a full revolution, more democratic. So take it away.
So rather than aiming for yet another change of politicians and parties in power, why not aim for a change of the political system itself? As representative democracy, it sinks into crisis. We need to go back to democracy in its original meaning as rule of the people. It is time to imagine what real democracy would look like and to create institutions and mechanisms that could be the building blocks of genuinely democratic societies. Today, democracy is equated with representative government based on free elections of political entities that rule on the citizens' behalf. This system, referred to as representative democracy, has been the dominant one in the West for the last 200 years and is now being exported across the world and promoted as the only possible alternative to outright dictatorship. But this system is now in deep crisis. In established representative democracies, the trust in political entities and or political elites and conventional institutions is crumbling. Participation in elections is shrinking. And political parties are losing their members. In the old, well-developed democracies of Europe, the streets are boiling as millions protest against unpopular and brutal austerity policies imposed on them from above. More and more people are now realizing that their elected representatives do not represent them. Rather, governments of both left and right bow to the dictates of the big banks, the financial institutions, the multinational corporations, and their powerful lobbies. In this situation, the ballot has little meaning because we have no real choice. We can only change political elites that rule us but we do not have the right to decide upon the development of the society in which we live. A real democracy, however, is a direct and participatory democracy in which all citizens have the possibility and the right to participate in the decisions that affect our lives and our communities. While the powers that be in the mainstream media and pundits argue that such a citizen-based democracy is not possible or even desirable, there exists, in fact, a range of new institutions and experiments, as well as some old ones that show that a direct and participatory democracy is both possible and feasible today. These democratic innovations, however, scattered and limited, could, if improved, strengthened and spared, be tools for radical democratization of society. In this article, I will take a look at some of these democratic institutions and mechanisms and discuss their strengths and weaknesses and explore their potentials. Let me just bump in there. All right. I did actually cover this article before, I think, either earlier in the year, but I just summarized it then. Uh, it was kind of rushed, So, but this is going to be a full okay. reading. Participatory budgeting. The popular assembly where citizens meet face-to-face -to, -face to discuss, vote, and make collective decisions is the original form of democracy. Historically, different kinds of popular assemblies have existed in many communities across the world, from village assemblies in North Africa to the assembly of ancient Athens, the lands uh, gemeinde of medieval Swiss cantons, and the town meetings of 17th century New England. The recent decades, a myriad of new democratic institutions have been created across the world, 
in which popular assemblies form an essential part of the institutional structure. The most famous of these is participatory budgeting. Have you heard of this before? Okay. No, participatory budgeting lets residents decide how to spend their city's or mun- municipalities' public budget through a process of popular assemblies in the neighborhoods and districts. Oh, man. It was first developed in the city of Porto Alegre in southern Brazil in the late 1980s, when the Brazilian Labor Party won the municipal elections after the end of the military dictatorship. Since then, it has helped spread it to hundreds of cities and municipalities in Latin America, Europe, and the United States. I want to jump in, in to point okay. out a compl- like a rant, a little mini rant of like when I talk of like direct democracy to when I canvass or, or just other Americans, even other liberals or lefties, there's kind of an attitude of like people aren't ready for it. Like people wouldn't do well in the situation of actually acting democratically. There's a cynicism that's probably, it's, it's really quite ingrained in us because you have these other situations where they went straight from dictatorship to direct democracy and it worked. Yeah. There, there didn't have to be all these transitionary periods. It can be done with people who even can't read. You just need a good facilitator to facilitate such decision making and get input directly and then, and have votes. Um, it does not have to be, everyone does not have to be a professional. In fact, it's about deprofessionalizing how, not how the decisions are made because the facilitators are a type of professional, but the decision makers can be deprofessionalized. Because otherwise what you have in technocracy in our current neoliberal paradigm is only professionals are, well, what is it? The qualifications, qualifications, the word I want. They are qualified to make decisions on behalf of others. They're qualified to govern. And that's not democracy at all. And I'm really tired of other leftists who call us a democracy because we have elections. When these elections are about which professional, qualified individuals going to make decisions for everyone else. Okay. Mike? Yeah. uh, Okay. Can you read it like just a little bit and then I'll jump in in a sec? Sure. In the neighborhood assemblies, as all, all residents have the right to participate and to vote on the budget priorities of their neighborhood. These assemblies then elect delegates to regional assemblies and to a budget council. That's how it scales up. The budget council then puts together a budget for the whole city based on the priorities made in the neighborhood assemblies. Right? So the directives of the assemblies are carrying up the pri- spending priorities, right? They're not deciding each line item, okay? It's not item by item, but it's the priorities. And then you have, quote unquote, you know, chosen professionals that then are the facilitators of the priorities. They're not making the priorities. That's how our current governments usually work. Large numbers participate in the process. In some places, over a hundred thousand each year. Usually the majority of the participants are women, poor, and other sections of the population that are marginalized in conventional political institutions. You know, like, Representative democracy, I guess. Participatory budgeting has led to many positive results, including poverty reduction and redistribution of budget resources to the poorest neighborhoods. That's what defund the police really is. So really, instead of just kind of charging that we should cut police budget and redistribute it, what we really need is participatory budgeting so that neighborhood assemblies can say we want less police spending, we want more health care spending. 
it also leads to a large reduction of corruption because there's no, you know, funneling of uh, resources through a small group of people. And the more transparency as well as a more vibrant civil society. However, there is a large variations in the institutional design and different models of PB that have spread across the world. The strong models give the residents' decision-making power over entire or large parts of the municipal budget. There are strong models which give uh, residents more direct decision-making power over parts of the budget, like they're voting on sections of it. And they are based on neighborhood assemblies where all residents can participate and vote on these priorities. It is these strong models that have produced the best results in the form of poverty reduction, decline in corruption, and so on, participation. The next paragraph is, the in the original model of participatory budgeting that was created in Puerto Alegre, uh, there's a book called Participatory Democracy Revisited. Um, I'm sorry, it's an essay written by Carol Patman, uh, who was one of the underwriters of this. I also want to point out that there is some PB that has occurred in America. There's a city in California that had did it. How it's usually done is not the full budget, of course. No way. We can't trust the whole budget prioritization to the, you know, to neighborhoods. But, um, how it usually works in America, where it exists, exists in Chicago, New York City, and other small cities, is part of the discretionary funding, right? The things that count as pork. Where does the pork spending go? Is it going to go to the military contractor? Is it going to go to build this, uh, you know, fancy, fancy library? Does it go to a personal project of the representative, you know, uh, Senator Billy Bob? Take that money, discretionary spending, and then leave that up to be voted on basically through participatory budgeting. And in that case, in American style, what it is is you have committees of people, and these would be volunteers. They don't set the priorities. They set the projects. They form the projects. Uh, city employees, uh, we call them, advise them on the details. Let's say the project is we want to fill all the potholes. And so the city official helps them uh, get together the proposal of what would that cost, what were the other things entailed. So then there's a price tag. And the actually doing of the project is sort of outlined. And these projects are then put on a very large ballot that is included on election day. So you're voting for the representatives and doing that uh, noise. But then you have a project ballot where the top three winners get funded. And they could be, say, the murals downtown. They could be, you know, seating in this park. All kinds of things. And it's the discretionary funding that would go to those things normally. But the difference, the big difference, is now it's voted on by the public, so the people actually choose. And those projects still exist to be voted on at a later date even. Or they could be changed to, to be even stronger proposals. And that's done in, like, so, but it's usually up to individual assemblymen. So some cities, each council person is given their own discretionary budget for community spending, right? And they're choosing to use that in this process because they're progressive enough or left-leaning enough. And in New York City, like half of the city of the borough, not the boroughs themselves, but the council districts are now doing this because each councilman is given a million dollars to spend. So there would be a campaign to promote this and organize around and get people to come out to these meetings, like flyers that said, how would you spend a million dollars? 
come to our meetings and, right. you know, and discuss. And, and that's like the difference between the public meetings that occur in, in most American cities where you have council people that want to more participation, but it's like, Oh, I can't get people to come out. I can't get people to care about things. I'm like, well, yeah, cause there are these meetings and nothing happens. Nothing's being decided. There's no actual power there. If there is money and like, if you come to the meeting, you will have a say on how this is spent. Because otherwise, yeah, if it was like I spend a million dollars, I think that's enough of an attention grabber that you get people. You get hundreds of people to show up, and and that's what well, occurred. In city, yeah, you hundreds. And that's when that is what has occurred. And so I have, there's lots of pictures, and I've made a um, presentation on this. Even uh, the other thing was the city where they they just passed a new tax. It was like a minor tax. It would just raise a hundred thousand dollars, and then that was the PB budget. Um, we had a more radical activist in Albany on the mayor's transition team. This was now eight years ago. And oh, yeah. it was brought up, but then austerity politics basically and attitudes just override and like, oh, we don't actually have extra money to spend to do even minor like $10,000 PV, PB, you know, because when it comes to public spending, you need like half a million dollars just to do anything even to fix up a park or something. Even though with volunteer labor, 10 grand might would be enough for a lot of things. I mean, the grand that we're getting to upgrade all of our stuff is 10 grand. 10 grand is a good starting budget for a lot of community projects. And 10 grand is nothing in the city budget, you know? It's like, because the budget is, um, what is it, 300 million? Yeah, and then how much of that goes to the police? Half of it. Or, or in some cities, a third, sometimes it's 40%, but it's a lot. Or you could say half of it goes to public safety, and that includes the fire department. We want a good fire department, so on. So uh, let's let's skip ahead then. Um, the rest is because they really focus on Port Allegra, and now we just talked about all the stuff that's happening in. Oh, yeah, no, they also mentioned, oh, let me just finish this up, participatory budgeting communal councils. Oh, wait, 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 did I skip ahead? Oh, no, okay, the next one's communal councils. Um, though we're going to be covering that later. So communal councils are simply just, oh, wait, no, we're almost so, out of the hour. Can yeah. you start the hour with that? Oh, yeah, we're definitely going to continue this. And then the next, uh, the rest of the next hour will be a similar type of article to this, but in the more direct case mm-hmm. of Portland, and then the direct application of this in Rojava. And that will, that will clean things up very nicely. So right now we're talking about things in the abstract, along with, of course, actual examples. And then we'll cover, we'll go in depth with two particular examples. No, actually, we still have like five minutes. So, okay. Uh, Another participatory institution based on popular assemblies is the Consejo Comunales, the communal councils in Venezuela. Communal councils are a small local participatory institutions uh, comprised of approximately 200 to 400 families in urban areas and 20 to 50 families in rural areas, which make decisions about initiation and implementation of local projects. Projects include basic services like water and sewage systems, electricity, medical centers, housing and road building, as well as cultural activities. All decisions are made through popular assemblies composed of at least 10% of residents over 15 years. The assemblies also elect uh, committees tasked with financial management, 
monitoring of government, and local priorities like health, education, and land management. In a few years, the communal councils have become very popular, and there are now over 30,000 of them across Venezuela. The government has transferred billions of dollars to the councils, and thousands of projects have been implemented. Also, larger communes have been created, consisting of many communal councils. With participatory budgeting in Brazil, decentralization was a crucial step in moving power downwards to ordinary citizens at the grassroots level. Although the communal council's law was passed in 2006, a decentralization process has already in the 1980s paved the way. Okay, let me uh, hold on, hold on. So, yeah, so just a word on Venezuela, evil dictatorship, right? So I just want to finish the last, in the last, oh, wait. Sorry, I misread it. But I want to spend the last few minutes of the hour um, repeating what we talked about before we started the show, which was using some our, in our in our media landscape. I'm thinking Star Wars. I'm thinking Assassin's Creed. Usually, the the boiled down conflict is between freedom and order. Now, this is really simplistic and yes. kind of obfuscates what is the real battle over, and. Talking about direct democracy in these, in these, uh, an actual, like the, the, this, um, communal power, this communalism, it's more about decentralization versus centralization. Because when, let's, let's think of Star Wars. The battle is between the empire, which centralizes power and, ex- and exudes it, versus the self-government of a decentralized galaxy. In Star Wars' case. In our case, it would be the world, or a country, or a town. Power is decentralized. You're not removing the lack of power or authority or values or governance. In fact, it's all about the self-governance. Self-governance is not chaos. And that is the most strongest position any anarchist-leaning person can make to make uh, these ideas make sense to those that have been trained to think in terms of order versus chaos or order versus freedom, and freedom is messy and chaos uh, and there's and bad things happen in freedom, but it's worth the cost of it because at least some people get to be really rich. Um, that's that seems to be the social contract of America. Um, that you know, hey, you know, a lot of people are poor, but a lot of people also get to be rich. That's that's not moral. Um, so, any thought? Any thoughts on that? Well, uh, it's ta- it's about how the media, like Star Wars. You said how it's kind of like a battle between the order and freedom. And that's the sequel series, or the, uh, the original trilogy, not the sequel. The original, it was the Empire versus the Republic. But the prequels, as much as people like to rag on them, I find them absolutely fascinating because they kind of show the way that even Central, like even centralization that's supposed to be good. The Republic was supposed to be good and it was centralization that was supposed to help the people and act on behalf of the people. But it turned and about to be the weakness. That acted on behalf of the people was, had, was uh, susceptible to weakness and was susceptible to those who sought to con- control it, corrupt it, undermine it. it. Their own gain, exactly. Okay, so that's the end of the first hour. Join us back for the second hour and the three left show. All right, if you live in this community, 
and you pay taxes, come out and vote, decide how your tax dollars get spent. Participatory budgeting is a different way to engage with government and to decide how tax dollars are spent. It's giving people real power over real money to make the decisions that affect their lives. The reality is, is who knows better about their community than the people that live in their community. Nobody else can make a decision about what you need more than the person that's dealing with it. Oh, this is different. Because you're actually voting for where the money is going to be spent instead of allowing them to decide where to spend the money. So how does it work? First, people brainstorm ideas. They come together in neighborhood assemblies and start to think of what kinds of projects would they like to see in their neighborhood. Volunteers take people's initial ideas and turn them into real projects. We started with maybe about 40 projects, and so we had a series of budget delegate meetings, and we narrowed down the list into about four or five projects. What are the real needs of the community? If you only have a certain amount of money, what is it that you can do that's going to benefit as many people as possible? And uh, we're asking for a projector and 30 Mac laptops. Plus countdown clocks. I'm dreaming of modern benches, new benches. Seniors have nowhere to go. People actually get a taste of governing in their city, of making the tough decisions and coming up with things that can be done to improve their community. And they bring them back to the public for a vote. It's a way of validating every voice in our community and saying, you know what, whatever your position is, you live in our community, you have a right to decide, and that me as a representative and government should respond and should listen to that voice. The projects with the most votes get funded. We have the playground improvements at Millbrook Housing. They are then implemented over the next few years, and the following year, the process starts again. People brainstorm new ideas, turn them into new projects, vote on them, and fund more improvements for their community. PB becomes part of the budget process. It becomes a new way of governing. I think this is like the greatest wave of democracy coming into the United States. Where it started was in Porto Alegre, Brazil in 1989. From there it spread all over Brazil, Latin America, and at this point over 1,500 cities around the world, and increasingly in North America. This was a great opportunity for you to be a part of government and better the city you live in. Who wouldn't want to take advantage of that? You're creating a more educated platform of voters overall. So I think this can only be good for the big project of democracy.
Welcome back to the Three Left Show. Um, we're going to get back to describing direct democracy in practice, policies that maybe we could be trying out ourselves. Um, an interesting thing about um, internal Green Party debate is, on uh, New York State anyway, we lost our ballot status, so we need to focus more on local elections, or we can only focus on local elections now. We can't do wider scope uh, elections and stuff and then appeal more people that way. Well, we can only well, we can just focus on the locals, and what that what it means is so like with um, the idea of starting neighborhood councils or popular assemblies is on the minds of some of us, but we kind of need a means to do that to kind of be that parallel government, a shadow government, dual that's dual power building, a government that is separate that can do its own thing that can be this commune, this communal because the city is not going to do participatory budgeting. But what if we formed a union that collected dues specifically to fund communal projects or community projects? Right. A lot of uh, the, the way the system is set up, you know, you have nonprofits, they apply for grants, it's professionalized. The nonprofits, I mean, maybe they can hand out a survey, they can canvas to see what people need, right? But they don't do assemblies. And that's something that I feel is missing from the, you know, from making uh, local city governance or, or community activism more vibrant and that it's 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 very entrepreneurial right and entrepreneurs do community projects and then they get community buy-in and volunteers but it's really not a, like where's the choice coming in and that's why participation is still like always kind of low it's not going to be mass so let's skip ahead to and they mentioned the zapatistas use communal councils for popular power and self-governance um, so let's move to the next section, Mike, uh, sortition and mini publics. Tell us about those. Democratic uh. mechanisms are essential to participatory institutions as they prevent the establishment of a cemented and professionalized political class insulated from ordinary citizens in local communities. Such mechanisms include short and limited terms for elected delegates delegates being recallable at any time. Rotation of delegates is another way to prevent creation of elites and ensure diversity in mass participation. In the Zapatistas Council of Good Government, for example, each citizen serves on the council for only two weeks before they go back to their communities. Another mechanism that, eff that effectively prevents establishment of elites and ensures the participat uh, participation of ordinary citizens in decision-making as holders of political offices, is sortition, or selection by lot. The use of lot played an important role in the democracy of ancient Athens, where most positions of political authority were selected this way. For Aristotle, selection by lot was central to democracy. While elections were the mark of oligarchy, in Athenian democracy, lot ensured that citizens could rule and be ruled in turn. 
And together with rotation of office, it functioned as a defense against oligarchy. In modern representative systems, however, selection by lot is absent. Democracy is now exclusively equated with competitive elections for positions of political authority. And let me just jump in to say, like, this is the ultimate lie of American exceptionalism here. I think this is a really important point to, like, call on and repeat, that elections are the mark of oligarchy, that representative democracy is simply the way of oligarchy. It always has been from Rome to now. And it's the town council. It's the, it's the meeting, town meeting. That's, that's what democracy actually is and looks like. And to actually do that ourselves. And the selection of lot is something that I'm playing around with in my head when it comes to like duties, like crisis duties, like snow shoveling and stuff like that. You know, we have jury duty, right? We do selection by lot for jury, jury duty. Right. It's the only thing we do lot selection for. And, and that is treated like such a pain in the neck, even though like you may get called once a decade, if that. And it'll be even more, less frequent in New York because we actually include a lot of professional people who were exempt from jury duty, uh, previously, like doctors, lawyers, and et cetera. Oh, wow. And it's really just a day or so, right? If you're selected, it takes a week or so, but yeah, whatever. You get paid a wage. But it's such, it just shows how selfish, like, uh, we're tr uh, trained to be and that, like, oh, I could be earning more of my regular salary, but I have to do my civic duty. Ugh. But that civic duty yeah. should expand to so many other facets. It could be volunteer work. Basically, all volunteer work could be put into this public lot system. And then once a year for a week, you're doing the volunteer labor because it, this is all labor that really has to be done. But we don't organize it in a way where it's actually a necessity. It's like it's up to chance if it gets done or not. And if it doesn't get done, someone starves, someone dies, you know, or some or people people suffer. And I hate thinking like you know about that because uh, so many people are not attuned to think that that's something we should do. It's all it has to be you know the voluntarism. You know, you know, love, love the anarchists and the ANCAPs, right? With voluntarism is, is the core of libertarian thinking, right? And that includes all left wing, left wing, a lot of left wing thinking. But voluntarism to, I, I feel like it can only go so far. We're only going to be building islands if, if it's left up to voluntarism. But how do we get voluntary buy in for systems of civic duty, right? Well, that's what the, Democracy is the, how you get the buy-in. People consent to it. And if people want to argue and say, I don't want to do this extra stuff, but you make the case of how much you get from it, and everyone kind of understands you actually do get a lot. So that's my thoughts there. So you can keep going. However, the last decades, there have been a range of experiments with sortition and deliberative institutions like citizens' assemblies, citizen juries, consensus conferences – planning cells, and deliberative polls, often referred to as mini-publics. Sortition was also recently used in the first part of the process to write a new constitution in Iceland. In mini-publics, deliberation is usually guided by independent facilitators. The participants hold hearings in which they hear evidence from and question expert witnesses. 
and the deliberations usually take place in both plenary and in small groups. Participants are selected for many publics through the use of statistical sampling to ensure that citizens from all social groups are represented. Sortition differs from popular assemblies in that equal opportunity to participate is replaced by equal probability to of being uh, selected to participate. This way, no citizens or social groups are systematically excluded from participation. So this is just the means of kind of narrowing the amount of people in the room down uh, in a fair and equal, equitable way. Um, other things to note is to, the defin- to define plenary, uh, plenary um, or, yeah, you actually said it correctly, is uh, it just means all together. It's everyone in a room. So like a conference, a, a plenary, uh, plenary is basically like the big auditorium with a thousand people in it. And then you have breakout groups or sub lectures or whatever. Um, that's how left form works. And that's the only time I've been in one, but it's, you know, it's basically a big lecture. It's where you have the big guest speaker. You'd see the other thing I want to, well, oh yeah, about delegation, delegates. The difference between delegates and representatives is another thing to stress to think differently about all this because representatives, isn't it annoying where like say a politician's elected and then they break their promises right away and then yeah, the, the sure. absurdity that it's like you're stuck with them for their term, like they could break their promises literally the next day and there's quote unquote nothing you can, you or the public can do about it. And the fact that their term is maybe as short as two years, but it could be four years. And then suddenly, like, the buyer's remorse could be instantaneous, and there's nothing you can do about it, no legal means. Uh, there's, I mean, I, California has recall, right? But that can take years to implement. But with delegates, they're recallable, right? And recall, recallability, I mean, like a recall election in California. So they have that. And wouldn't it be great that if, you know, that's the thing that, that really keeps a representative, quote-unquote, honest and accountable is that they could be recalled and replaced at any time. It makes them, it could make them more paranoid and skittish and more obedient to the invisible, the faceless authority of public polling, I suppose. But then remember that, like, we're talking about a system where delegates kind of get handed up. They're not, delegates are not representing and making decisions for thousands of, or millions of people. They are representing the priorities that are given directly to them. They're just facilitating them. And that's way more, less pressure. I'll put that. It's a lot less pressure. Do you want to continue? Yeah. British with Columbia. a few exceptions. Yeah. With a few exceptions, like the British Columbia Citizens Assembly, most many publics are only advisory. The participating citizens are consultant, but they don't have any decision making power. The weakness of most many publics is the role of organizers, usually governments, who set the agenda and choose experts and thus are able to influence the outcome of the deliberations. In this way, many publics can be manipulated by existing political institutions and elites to legitimize decisions made elsewhere. And as uh, Patman points out, most many publics are only temporary and are usually advocated as mere supplement to the existing electoral system. That's the experiment. Yeah. That's usually right. the kind of reform Democrats give us supplements. Yep. Experiments with many publics and recent use of sortition, however, have given us rich proofs that ordinary citizens are able to discuss and solve complex problems when given the po- uh, possibility to do so, and that they are able to take important decisions in the public interest. 
Several democratic theorists have recently made proposals for different kinds of political bodies, including legislative bodies based on sortition that would not be just be complements to the existing electoral institutions, but constitute alternatives. That's pretty cool, right? Makes you want to research these models and then try to actually try them out, at very least in the organizations you're a part of. I actually encountered another guy. Um, we were talking about this uh, off air about like dank, uh, green dank meme pages and Facebook pages that have, may have green in the title. And a lot of people are just like, well, the Green Party is dead. We lost ballot status. We're dead now. They're, they're kind of ignorant that we've lost ballot status before. Um, and it doesn't destroy or kill a party. It just means we shift from running for governor or being able to run for Congress to we just we can only run in local races, um, which we usually do win um, when we really try. And um, in certain areas, uh, we've elected way more people than all these other just other left wing parties, which the movement for people's party says we just want the Greens just want to be another left party. We don't want to do that. It's like, well, we're not just another left party. We're a left party that's elected a lot of people. Yeah, we're the left. Exactly, exactly. Um, and then it hurts to see people comment out of a place of ignorance of like, oh, you know, I'm a I'm a green voting independent, but I'll never I'll never join them now as as, as if he was ever going to before. And it's like he says, like, I just wish they changed the name. I'm like, well, why don't you join and, and fight to change the name, jerk? Anyway, that's that's the, my attitude towards all that. People, they complain, they, they kvetch, they kvetch, and they never actually act on, like, look, if you want something to be better, you have to join it. I mean, maybe that goes for the Democrats too, right? But there's also a point of, like, can this actually be better? What Would it would it be enough if it was just better, the Democrats? I To me, not good enough. And I believe we believe, feel the same way. Uh, let's go down to... You have to scroll down quite a bit, Mike. Uh, well, let's skip over citizen initiatives because ballot right, initiatives. I got it on my computer now, so it's okay. easier. To go down to the last one, which is kind of the wrap up of like, can we turn these policies into a movement? Which the is the grassroots grass- network for yep. participatory democracy. Exactly, and a a network is a direct- party, you know. A radical, direct, and participatory democracy will not be handed down to us by the elites, but it has to be struggled for by ordinary citizens and social movements. As Occupy Oakland activists Gabriel Hetland and Abigail and Martin emphasize, institutional reforms must be accompanied by popular struggle and direct action. This is exactly what happened in the municipality of Torres in Venezuela, where hundreds of citizens occupy City Hall to demand implementation of participatory budgeting. The result of this popular struggle was one of the world's best participatory budgets, in which residents have control over 100% of municipal investment budget. For radical democratic change to happen, there must be large popular movements demanded and struggling for this change. But unless ideas of direct and participatory democracy are known and familiar to most people, such movements will not emerge. So a first step, then, is to spread these ideas and make a strong argument for how direct and participatory democracy can be feasible today. As Kristen Mayer Arlson from the Democratic Association Alda in Iceland points out, people will not 
call for what they don't know. Perhaps the time has come to create an international network from the bottom up from social movements and activists campaigning for and struggling for direct and participatory democracy. While there already exists some networks and initiatives, most of these are sponsored by or supported by agencies like the World Bank and by governments and other elite institutions. Few of these aim for participatory institutions as tools for radical democratization, but see these as mere additions to the existing political system. What is lacking is a more radical agenda. As international grassroots-based network promoting and struggling for participatory democracy as an alternative and ultimately a replacement to the existing system. Through such a network, social movements, activists, and ordinary citizens across the world could exchange ideas, experiences, learn from each other, and develop campaigns and struggles. The huge task of reinventing and struggling for direct and participatory democracy in the age of austerity, centralized corporate power, and technocratic rule will not be easy. But in the face of increasing ecological, social, political, and economic crises, creating real democracy can be our only hope. Something to strive for. And yeah, yeah the educate, doing the education is kind of definitely step one, which is why just kind of the promoting the ideas and then at least in islands, making them happen just as co-ops grow from little islands, and then they can actually proliferate. And the same can go for assemblies. If one nonprofit starts, you know, doing more than just sending out a little survey to community members, but actually calling for a meeting to discuss it first, that would be a big step forward to getting a lot of other people turned on to it. And then saying, why does why can't the city do this? And then it'll snowball. Time. So, we'll, yeah, we'll go to what is a Symbiosis Portland. Now, Symbiosis is a, um, how do I describe them? I guess you could just call them an interest group that just does uh, communalism and is one of those educational projects. So here's something they published um, as a collective, I guess, uh, in the middle of summer as well, because this was during the Portland riots, and it is titled, why we must abolish the office of mayor. So this is also the same tone of abolish the police, abolish law, abolish slavery and wage slavery. Um, and abolish representative democracy, replace it with direct democracy. You know, oligarchy. We, we really should just switch out the terms. It's just oligarchy. Our election system is oligarchy. It's two parties, right? We call the duopoly. Just call it the oligarchy. That's what it is. Oligarchy is a more standard and kind of official term, I would feel. Because duopoly is just like random nomenclature. The city of Portland's hierarchical government structure, legacy of white supremacy and exploitative development policies, have all worked to dispossess hundreds of thousands of residents in response to rightlessly angry urban underclass has developed. To manage this, the neoliberal capitalists have invested hundreds of millions of dollars into militarizing the police. However... The people's long history of radical neighborhood organizing and revolutionary movements in the Middle East all point to a solution. The complete democratization and community control of all city bureaus and the abolition of the police. Portland's mayoral problem. Top-down social structures that concentrate power into the hands of a few people typically lead to bad results. The rising violence of police departments across the country is directly linked to the increasing anti-democratic structure 
of urban governments. Portland City Commissioner System is one of the most regressive forms of urban governments in the world. I think it's interesting to meant, um, that they kind of stress the urban side of it. Is this to propose that rural governments are more democratic, or at least they feel that the way? And that's kind of why Republicans are like, you know, we're the bastions of freedom. We're the ones who actually have a decentralized structure in our county. It's in the cities where things are autocratic. They have a point in that. In this system, there's almost no representation of local voices in policy making. Four city commissioners and the mayor are appointed in citywide elections. And that is so difficult when you have citywide elections. That's one of those oligarchy type uh, tools of making elections citywide because it means you have to cover the whole city. You have to canvas. You have to get a percentage of the vote over a whole city, depending on the size of the city, oh, right? Oh, yeah. Um, if it's by ward and you basically just need to cover 10 blocks, that's winnable. That's how you elect, um, a tenant strike activist. <laughs> uh, not tenant. I mean, red strike. With no cities in the U.S. have much room to brag in the democracy department, Portland remains the only one that doesn't hold regional elections, which I guess because it's a metropolitan area. Given the extreme financial and bureaucratic barriers, oh, yeah, 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 and and I just want to digress a little bit because in in the technocratic kind of professional, it's it's really the word I want to stress is professional, professional Facebook pages, there's so many anti-democratic attitudes. They don't frame it as such, right? Democracy is never a word that they actually use. They, but right. they propose ways of actually taking less power from popular, just popular. They, they fear populism. They prefer yeah. them and their cohort of professionals who know better managing everything. And that scares me, man. Cause some of them are like, they, they, they identify as progressive. Maybe they even like Bernie. And they, they want to redistribute wealth and stuff. But when it comes to local governance, they're, they're as anti-democratic as, as the worst right-winger. It's, it's, it's quite eerie, but it kind of shows the differences in class and how that leads to one's view of what governance should be. Given the extreme financial and bureaucratic barriers to creating ballot initiatives, okay, so even when you have ballot initiative and initiative process, they're still... A lot of barriers and a lot of problems with it, so I don't really see that as kind of a main go-to policy. The average Portlander has almost no power in policymaking, and this goes for the national level too. And so I definitely empathize with anyone who's like, our system doesn't work. So, But then they kind of throw everything else out, like any kind of popular will, because, again, they're trained to think that our country is a democracy. And since it's a mess, it must mean that democracy is bad, which is, you know, asinine. Additionally, the mayor has special powers to designate bureaus to city council people. Thus, council people must appease the mayor to get what they want to do done. The mayor also drafts the proposed annual budget. Now, this goes for any strong mayor city, which includes city of Albany and many, many others. Uh, some cities are kind of council-heavy, and it's actually the council that then appoints not like the mayor and they're not called the mayor. They're like the commissioner. They're like, they're like the mayor is just the manager of the city and they're hired by the council or the popular body. But in mayor based cities, the council is so weak. They're just kind of amending whatever the mayor does. Currently Portland police bureaus budget consumes over 30% of all city funds 
despite constant school closures and civil service cutbacks in other areas year after year. Because our city government gives so much power to the mayor while shutting everyone else out, and because of the extreme financial barriers to be elected in any fashion, it allows for the interests of the well-resourced, privileged, the 1% to dominate all others. This sort of concentration of power allows for the untenored use of the police as a tool for both class and culture war. According to Portland Cop Watch, since Mayor Ted Wheeler took office in 2016, there have been well over two dozen people killed by Portland police. To mark just a few of the most egregious incidents, 2017 unarmed black teenager Quanice Hayes was killed by PPB as well as Torrell Johnson while running away from the police. They were shot in the back. In 2018, Patrick Kimmons was shot over 19 times, and Jason Washington was killed while attempting to break up a fight close to Portland State University. We need not remind readers about the long list of scandals involving police collaboration, yada, yada, yada. All of this was received nothing more than a tacit endorsement of a current mayor. Well, he likes to style himself as a sort of moral authority capable of preaching to the public about the virtues of nonviolence, he allows his dogs and the PBB a long leash. However, he is just the latest stooge for the white supremacist capitalist class. This I want to make, make a point about how, whether it's a local politics I live in or anywhere else, there seems to be always a case of surface level is just looking at the people, right? They know something's wrong. Maybe they don't like how things work. But then you just blame the person who's there. Right? Who's president? Who's mayor? They're the problem. We just need to unelect them. We need to get rid of them, right? Uh, this is wrong, right? What we don't like, what we dislike is not the person, but the way things work. And I suppose it's assumed that if you change who's in there, it changes how things work. But this is a fallacy. White supremacy is a structural, systemic, and material force. And this is Portland's racism problem. So I'm going to skip this. I don't think I need to remind people that Oregon actually didn't allow black people to move there until, like, um, a certain late date. Let's see. According to uh, Portland State U urban studies professor Karen Gibson in her article, Bleeding Albina, urban development policies of blight clearance were a major contributing factor to the uprisings in the late 60s. Substandard housing, de facto segregation, and continual economic devastation boiled over into major riots in the Albina district, this is in Portland, in both years. Sparked by police instigation, remind you of something, the rebellion lasted several days, costing hundreds of thousands of dollars in property damage. In the midst, militant black youth demanded the removal of the Portland police for the independence of Albina from the city of Portland. This is also part of the creation of the Portland Black Panther Party by founder Kent Ford later in 69. Marked the beginning of a serious organizing effort against the city's discriminatory housing and urban development policy. This is, of course, nationwide. In addition to their, to their Serve the People programs, community self-defense projects. Cover those in the past, haven't we? To roll back the harmful impacts of urban rural programs, the Portland Black Panther Party did their research they knew that under federal law, new urban renewal programs had to work with community groups to get input and approval before they could receive funding. This is something that still is in existence to this day and is kind of how activism stays alive uh, since it does, in fact, get results through such processes. 
But that's just for certain government projects, right? Everything else, it's just oligarchical capitalism. Uh, the work of the Panthers began spreading the idea of neighborhood autonomy and self-determination. Scary ideas to the, some people. For many decades, this mentality became the ideological backbone in Portland left politics. And thus, it should be again. It propelled a massive cultural shift from a tiny racist backwater to the iconic bastion of Portlandia, or Port Antifa, today. So there's a neighborhood revolution. The work of the Panthers was instrumental in kick-starting the neighborhood revolution. They set an example by creating the language around neighborhood self-determination and showing other groups how to fight urban renewal plans. The neighborhood revolution witnessed the creation of an independent grassroots network. Same language used as in the last piece. And the neighborhood associations to resist socially and ecologically destructive development plans. So here in Albany and other towns and cities, I'm sure, develop neighborhood associations are the main tool of community activism. This is kind of piss poor because community activists are usually, it's a tyranny of the active. It's whoever shows up the most or whoever's loud or complains a lot. Sometimes it's someone with really good intentions. Uh, sometimes it's a bad actor who's just likes butting in and and they get a negative rap. Sometimes neighborhood associations kind of have the feeling or the workings of well, those homeowners associations that, you know, but they, they don't have, homeowners associations actually have governor, like they have actual power because like you sign an agreement with them and you're almost like a citizen of the association. But maybe neighborhood associations should with popular assemblies kind of do that and make these neighborhood governments. And that's kind of what this is about. But and actually, it's more about how in Portland, these neighborhoods, these groups had power in city government. Uh, let's. Oh, yeah. And the, yeah, they removed the highways and created the park along the river. Uh, squatters in Lair Hill, a small neighborhood south of downtown, occupied homes to prevent the wholesale demolition of the area. They refused to leave and demanded the city recognize them as legitimate players and include them in any redevelopment plans. They were successful in delaying the plan long enough for it to be defunded. And that's really what's about def- delaying a project long enough and then it stops getting funded or it's too costly for the big corporation to continue. They're, they do yeah. have a limit. Sometimes it takes a while to get to their limit, but they do have a limit, just as the British Empire did. In the meantime, they organized their own community vision for that area, and they were eventually adopted by the city. In the wake of these efforts, dozens of self-organized grassroots community associations began to form and cultivate their own vision of their neighborhoods. We have a bit of this in Albany, in that city uh, community groups kind of have vision plans for various blighted neighborhoods. It's implementing them that's usually the challenge because uh, the city is always cash-strapped for resources, even as the capital of New York. We have to go beg the governor every year for paltry 12 million just to fill the budget gaps it's not extra money it's just to keep the budget balanced pay the police union to avail of some of the pressure the movement was originally uh, partially co-opted by progressive mayor neil goldschmidt who made neighborhood associations an official entity within the city government so once you get in are you co-opted are you are you winning power or are you being co-opted Goldsmith created several agencies that opened up the city of Portland to an unprecedented level of civic inclusion. He founded the Office of Neighborhood Associations, 
which was a well-funded city bureau that trained community members in various skills. Part of his work was in building community member-operated budget advisory committees. It's not PB, it's advisory, oh. but it's it's like it has that mini-public um, sense to it. Right. And this oversaw almost every city bureau and agency, according to Charles Abbott. And it was a map of the uh, neighborhood associations, the district coalitions, and the offices with their boundaries. There were one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of them. Uh, under ONA, there were 23 budget advisory committees where citizens mucked around in the everyday business of all the city bureaus. And thus, you can actually find corruption, keep people accountable, and yeah. The backs were labor-intensive and represented the epitome of the city's investment in citizen democracy during this period. This is in the 80s. As the decades wore on, though, the city of Portland began defunding the program in favor of more closed-off, managerial-style governance. Now, how all of this wasn't able, like, people, these groups couldn't oppose this is something of a mystery to me, but it's really kind of a, the city itself, like, it, 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 that's the shift of neoliberalism, right? That the whole city would be defunded. They'd never get another bank loan unless they shifted to managerial government. And this goes for everywhere. That's what hysteria politics is about. Uh, in the late 1980s and early 1990s, the NIMBY phenomenon took hold in Portland. So you, you just you just have reactionary, you know, because that's the thing about citizen inclusion. It's the opposite of NIMBYism. It's yes. It's I will say yes because I've had a say. And NIMBYism, the not in back, my backyard, is to be a control freak about what you can control, your own property, your own home, because you don't have control over anything else. And this is... What cancer culture is kind of pretty much like you just become a control freak over what you can control, which is, well, as things are, very, very little. So this phenomenon took hold. Instead of community members working together with a sense of common collective goals and vision, the period saw a rise of activists motivated by a sense of entitlement. I've got mine. Now I will pull up the ladder. So this is almost kind of a cycle of sorts. Like you have... Popular power, citizen engagement, unionization, you know, people get more and then they're satisfied. And then suddenly all of the collective action ends. It's like, oh, we don't need it anymore. Now we can be selfish. We can work within capitalism. Right. We I'm did a, it. It's done. We don't have to do it anymore. We can now be co-opted. Yes. But it, right. There's a need for a culture where it doesn't end, that it continues. And it's strange that, you know, in entrepreneurship and capitalism, their striving never ends. They're reaching out for more and more control and more security, right? Which comes, nothing's more secure than a monopoly. That never ends. Yeah. But when it comes to democracy and radicalism, there, there's a type, there, at least in America, it's just, that's, it's enough, right? It's enough, especially for certain generations. And it's, it's left up to the next generation to push further. This, this always confuses me, but mostly probably because I haven't started my own family. That's the, usually the grip of like, well, once you have a family, you'll be a conservative. You'll be, once you have enough, that's good enough. Like, but what about all the people that are still starving and homeless? 
Obviously, it's not exactly. good enough for me because as long as someone starves, I am not satisfied. Exactly. I guess that's real humanism, but uh, I think um, on Papa Left, which is kind of my favorite program now, there's a kind of certain leftist academics kind of push back on the idea that like humanism is kind of where we need to go because humanism or liberal humanism is kind of represented by by uh, by the Democrats as they are, uh, or or the or the humanist project of we have actually the humanist project is uniting the world right. Well, the world is united in neoliberal capitalism. So obviously the humanism that grew into this, obviously something was wrong with it. Often we need something better to to continue the project. So the neighborhood system established to provide the city with intermediary organizations. So it's not direct democracy, right? It's their middlemen. Suddenly it was challenged by outside groups. Oh, yeah, this is the other side of it. So it isn't just some grassroots like people are satisfied there is also the exterior forces of, well, of capitalism. Conservative lobbies such as the Pacific Legal Foundation, Cascade Policy Institute, adopted techniques first developed by progressive organizations, but applied them to protecting individual property rights and limiting Oregon's land use laws. Even corporations took on the guise of citizen interest groups, forming their own grassroots, or as pundits now refer to them, astroturf organizations, such as the Temperate Forest Foundation. So, so, the, so, like anything that could be co-opted or that corporations could fake being, right? Can a corporation fake a popular assembly? Maybe, like, we need to find the thing that they can't fake or make, like, or buy out. And, and I guess cynically, like, if a corporation's giving like uh, some kind of fifty bucks to everyone going to a citizen assembly, and then everybody's biased towards like the, say the proposal on voting for this, but I don't know. If there's a culture of community, then people aren't going to sell out because they know they have something better than a few extra dollars. Uh, the neighborhood revolution was a groundbreaking moment that shattered. Uh, the old conservative consensus that dominates city government until the 70s. Organizers found ways of communicating their shared... It's weird that it just goes from that, and then it goes to kind of singing its praises again. Unfortunately, eventually, the combination of corporate astroturf campaigns, defunding, and general right drift in American society, post-Reagan, uh, did a lot to diminish neighborhood associations as a bastion of leftist grassroots political life. And they become a lot more moderate which is kind of what we're left with in our neck of the woods. Portland's neighborhood association system remains unique from most others in the U.S. It is the only major city that affords neighborhood associations an official role in the city charter and within city government. So charter reform is imperative to actually make this happen. To this day, neighborhood associations continue to have power over development projects, although increasingly they receive less and less support from the government itself. Okay, from Portland, let's talk Rojava. Portland's legacy of popular movements for community autonomy and direct democracy are referred in the politics of libertarian municipalism or communalism, uh, a political practice and perspective that emphasizes direct democracy, yeah, direct democratic self-government. Rather than our top-down system, which provides no voice or power for communities to participate, the system gives all power to the people. 
Thus, anarchism is not a lack of power governments. It is a simply a matter of who is governing. Since 2012, a movement in northern Syria has developed. Um, we only... Let's... Oh, yeah, okay, good. The explanation. In Rojava society is self-organized into neighborhood groups known as communes. Perhaps that word is familiar. These communes are never more than a few hundred to a thousand people. They meet on a regular basis to make all the decisions that impact local life. Usually they have their own subcommittees that meet community needs, and everything from health, housing, food, self-defense, very important there. These communes are then linked together through regional cantons, uh, like in Switzerland. Communes send directly recallable delegates to the cantons, as mentioned before, that only act on express orders from their communities. Right? Delegates are given orders, not the other, not the other way around. Rather than making decisions on their behalf, like our current unaccountable representative structure. The cantons handle larger administrative tasks for the confederation of communes that are explicitly defined by communities themselves. So they are not making decisions over the communities they serve. These regional cantons are then linked together in a similar manner with delegates from each other. In this system, there is no need for mayors, governors, presidents, senators, or congressmen, because these hierarchical positions are not necessary for the society to meet their needs. They're self-organized on a local level and linked through this confederated structure. Includes a map and a handy chart um, to kind of make sense of the different levels of governance. So there's the base level of a commune. Think of a neighborhood. No, actually less than a neighborhood. It's 400, 30 to 400 households. So it's like a street, a block. Then there's the neighborhood, which is a people's council. This is comprised of a, a number of boards that make up 7 to 30 blocks. Then on a level above is a district council. So this would be either a whole city or a rural area, county. So there's a coordination of the, these neighborhood boards um, on the council on a district level. And then there's the final level, which is representatives from all these district councils that then meet uh, in what's called the TEV DEM. Since 2013, MGRK, that's the People's Council of West Kurdistan, could only meet canton-wide, but there is no good coordination between cantons. Then uh, there are, so there's the levels of governance, then there's the separate commissions, most of the work of the communes and people's councils are done through commissions. There is a separate women's council at every level. There are women-only commissions, which work together with the general commissions. These are, econo they do the economics. It's not banks. It's not oligarchs. It's not the 1% that are making economic policy or the rules of capitalism. It's people power. Uh, just a quick list of the commissions, the defense, economics, free society, Justice, political, civil society, ideology, so that'd be education, and women's councils. Then there are administrations. Part of the Syrian Democratic Council and the Democratic Federation of Rojava, so this is beyond just the cantons of Kurdish peoples, there is a legislative, executive, and municipal councils. There are plans for the, uh, the Grand Council to each of each canton to get 40% of the seats in a larger parliament. 
or the legislative council is the parliament. And this is all under the label Democratic Federation of Rojava, or Norver Syria. Right now, um, I actually need an update on the political situation. They're just trying to make sure that they kind of keep their this governance structure as they're reintegrated into Syria. They're not really given a choice. Obviously, ideally, they'd like to be separate, but that's not really going to be happening since they don't really have the military power or backing to fight the Assad government. Unlike anarchism or communism, this approach does not see the wholesale revolutionary overthrow of the state as possible or the imposition of a new state as desirable. Instead, it advocates for working towards a political and economic autonomy of communities from any state and promotes the necessity of self-defense, community self-defense. It works to center efforts aimed at reinvigoration of civic and political life. As a first priority, we have to organize our communities. Change won't come from above, and freedom can never be given by someone else. Skip ahead to some. Let's read the last conclusion here. What's next? I'm going back to Portland here. As has been demonstrated, the city of Portland's autocratic city commission structure enables the white supremacist capitalist class, that's a mouthful, to dominate our lives. The problem with this hierarchical state formation has led to generations of culturally genocidal policies directed at blacks and many, many others. Today, we are still dealing with the same underlying issues of hierarchy, white supremacy, capitalism. We are at the crossroads. Either we have systemic change now or deal with the increasingly destructive consequences of ecological catastrophe and a global authoritarianism. The political strategy of communalism provides a unique path forward. But what can we realistically do to put the brakes on this runaway car of the apocalypse? The long work of true social and political transformation is practiced day to day in building new community institutions and struggling through the hard realities of working across differences. This only happens when each of us is involved in organizing. We have to make lifelong commitments to building the organizations, our communities, and that's lifelong, right? This isn't a, even, a, even a decade project, right? But I think of things as, as decade projects. So building each of these institutions is like a decade-long project, building this radio station, building a streaming channel. Through collaboration, we can put the brakes on in this runaway car to the apocalypse and change course into something much more humane. So, yes, more wonderful explanations on, this time just on how governance works in Rojava. And, and they've even built little, like, kind of these open domed areas as meeting spaces. Pretty cool. Since, you know, they don't really have a lot of rain or they're definitely not. I mean, they have winners. Um, yeah, so that's that's pretty much the show. Let's just wrap up now. Um, you still with me, Mike? Um, you, can you hear me? Uh, yes, I can now. Um, okay, cool. Yeah. It was... No. How's the stream um, going? How's the stream going? The stream, the stream is doing well. I, other than um, that little issue, like I made a streamception, so I tried to do something funny, and then it uh, it very much messed up everything on my end. So I learned not to do that, and now I'm. I'm actually playing Among Us while uh, you're talking. All right. 
Um, you do you then. How how are you doing in Among Us? Are you learning how to spot the um, state infiltrators to our movement? A little bit. I just got killed doing wires in electrical. We're ah. in an admin. You could so be stabbed I'm in the a, back I'm at any fine. moment. Yeah. So, my profound thanks for listening, which is a skill as important as talking. So, I plan to listen. We do plan to listen to any constructive feedback that includes ideas for the show, any stories or topics you'd like to hear discussed. Uh, and you can send us this via social media on Facebook, Twitter, three lefts. We also have an email that's just three left show at Gmail. This program is made as part as a part of independent community radio. So support us materially along with many others with a donation or membership to WCAALP at grandarts.org. Or support us with your time by telling others what you believe will be interested in the show. Like and share our pages, uh, social medias, our socials. We're also now on, um, I'm not posting regularly, but I will start doing that. I'm now Mastodon on the Kavetica page, which we'll cover, I guess, another time. Uh, this episode and the last 10 are broadcast on most podcasting apps, but a full archive of the podcast, along with notes and sources, can be found at 3lefts.news. Of course, the most important thing is to put the ideas, thinking, and projects talked about here in practice yourself. Please, like working out. You can have a gym membership, but you don't actually get healthy unless you go work out and do the work. Uh, so be well. Keep it rad. Keep waving the flags of the three lefts. I also want to mention, which I'll, when I rewrite and reprint the script, that we now stream on Twitch. Mike Walsh is at Homegrown Hangout, and I have, hey. in tradition, simply made a three left show Twitch channel, which I streamed uh, last last night. And I had a pretty good time, actually. Uh, I went two hours of course, I covered Vosh because you got to piggyback on the big guys for a bit uh, until you. And I got, I got some actually some viewers and two, three follows. And someone said I had a That's nice awesome. voice, huh? That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you've you've done the same. And uh, and of course, once a week I'll join your stream. So we'll be doing that separately from this podcast, which of course we're also now streaming as Mike is doing on the Homegrown Hangout. So that's great. Um, and, of course, as we build up there, we may become associates. That's kind of the first-tier goal. And then we can take subs there. And with subs, we could probably fund better Internet connections and whatnot. Uh, we'll certainly improve things here in the studio once we get that money rolling. You can have all the money, but if you don't actually organize, it's a work jack squat. So, anyway. Yes. Okay. Let's just... Play myself out. live without a house, but you can't live without dignity, you can't live without sharing, you can't live without love, you know, and I think those are the things that need to be, are lost in, in, in a lot of uh, countries, in a lot of 
systems. Um, and, and these are the things that are very, very important at the core of what the Kurdish revolution, what the Rojava revolution, uh, the revolution of the people of the Middle East means. Um, democratic confederalism is a system uh, developed by uh, the Kurdish leader, uh, the PKK leader, Abdullah Öcalan. Um, it's a system that rejects uh, nation-statism and is an alternative to nation-statism in the Middle East. Um, it's a system without borders. Um, it's predicated on the organization of uh, communities uh, from the uh, bottom up um, in the form of uh, democratic assemblies, uh, in the form of neighborhood assemblies, um, women's organizations, youth organizations, economic cooperatives, um, uh, which build up to make um, democratic autonomy, which then uh, lots of democratic autonomous regions make up the democratic confederalism. Uh, let's say you have a problem uh, with uh, your water supply. Um, the people will try to resolve it at the local level. Um, so people will have a direct um, impact. The people living on, on a certain street or a road will have a direct impact on their own uh, street and resolve their own problem themselves. Because there's uh, assemblies at every level as well, people are always in the decision-making process. So you cannot say you do not have enough qualified uh, politicians, because everybody is a politician. And they're looking at all these alternatives. For example, Linux uh, is the only uh, system which uh, has Kurdish on it. So a lot of Kurds prefer using Linux, for example, uh, which automatically then democratizes uh, the, the, the Kurdish people as well through using the Linux because it's an open source. Um, I mean other things like Bitcoin are being discussed, I've heard. Um, these are all things that I've heard, I haven't specifically seen it. But again with the principles and the philosophy of this, of this, of this movement, uh, of, of this revolution, these are all things that will be um, preferred over other closed uh, hierarchical or capitalistic uh, products or, or sources. Like one line that you get all the time is people saying, oh, they're really still an authoritarian Marxist-Leninist group, they're just pretending to all this book tonight stuff to get like foreign support. It's like, right, you know, here you are, you're on the terrorist list, you're going to try to get off it by claiming you're anarchists. <laughs> you know, I mean, come on, if you're looking for foreign support, you'd pretend to either be an Islamist or a liberal, you know, that way you'll get support. Yeah, they said there's three levels of the economy. There's the war economy, there's what they call the open economy, which is a traditional market bazaar economy, which has existed for thousands of years, and there's the cooperative sector, which is what they're trying to develop. They have academies where they offer sort of six-week courses on how to do democratic self-management in the economic sector. Unfortunately, so many resources are, well, they have one in, Let's put it this way, they have one major advantage and one major disadvantage. The one major advantage is they didn't have to collectivize a lot of stuff because 
um, a lot of it either was already collectivized or had been privatized into the hands of cronies of the regime who then fled. So about 50% of the land, for example, is collectively owned now. Um, they didn't have to expropriate anything. Um, however, so that's their advantage. The disadvantage is so many resources have to be put into the war effort. So we were at a cooperative, you know, sewing um, uh, workshop, and everybody was making military uniforms, um, you know, and um, and they were doing it in a you know, cooperative fashion, but still. Um, Everything's focused on the war effort while it's lasting, which, so they can talk about their kind of long-term vision um, of, of gradually building up the cooperative sector and the idea of ecological industrialism to it gradually replaces everything else. Um, you can't get rid of capitalism unless you get rid of the state, and you can't get rid of the state unless you get rid of patriarchy. But instead of saying, therefore, you know, let us get rid of... Um, you know, capitalism, and then eventually the state will wither away, and gradually, of course, patriarchy will, will follow its own accord. Um, they realize that's that's not how it works. That's not going to happen. So we're going to do it the other way around. You know, we're going to start with the family, with basic interpersonal relationships. A lot of women 
actually rushed to the organization because they saw freedom there. Freedom from feudal structures, not only freedom from Turkish state, but freedom from feudal structures of the society as well, you know. And so they gained a lot of respect uh, because to live under those conditions, you know, like they, the women would not be able to even go on the street maybe, especially due to the colonial power's suppression. And then this woman was on top of the mountains and fighting the, the second biggest army of the NATO. Uh, 